Hey everyone, before we get started on the episode, I just wanted to give a shout out to one of our biggest fans and listeners. Uh, my good friend Daniel was involved in a head-on collision in November, and uh, thankfully his seatbelt saved his life. Uh, love you man, and hope for a very, very speedy recovery, and uh, just wanted to let you know that Spooky Soup is thinking of you. Well, how's it going, Tessa? Yo, Jesse. It's all good over here. How are you doing? Doing well, thank you. Welcome, everyone, to the Spooky Soup Podcast. I uh, I have one long Reddit story today. All right. And then I actually have some stories that um, a listener sent in, but I'm saving those for another episode. Awesome. So look, I look forward to sharing those with you. Yeah, I love listener stories. Everyone, send us your stories. Send them in. Send them in. You can email them to us at SpookySuitPodcast801 at gmail.com, or you can DM those to us on our Instagram page. So, um, yeah, I'm excited to hear what you have, but before we get there, I'll just dive into my story if that's okay. Yeah, go awesome. for it. Awesome. Reddit user, DarkHeroXX, and it is titled, Help Me. Simple, scary. Already scared. Love it. <laughs> A few months ago, I moved into a house that was listed for rent. For less than $1,000 per month, I could rent a two-bedroom, two-bathroom home built in the 1970s in a neighborhood close to everything I needed. Sharon, one of my best friends, and I had always wanted to live together but couldn't bring ourselves to do so until she got a good job and I was finally able to pay off some debt. Sure, it was a bit pricey, but she needed to get out of her parents' house and it was significantly cheaper than the apartment my ex-boyfriend had left me with. Be sure to take lots of pictures. Sorry for making you check out the place by yourself, Sharon told me over the phone. Don't worry, I'll make sure everything looks okay. I tried to be upbeat, but I was well aware that the perfect home did not exist. For the price, there had to be something wrong. I got out of my car and grabbed the key from the real estate office. I began to circle the front of the house. The house was made of faded red brick and topped with a bright green roof. The yard was a little overgrown, but it was small enough that cutting it wouldn't take long. So, what do you think? Sharon asked. It's cute, I guess. It has a family sitcom kind of vibe. I said as I peered through the window to no avail. Ooh, maybe we'll have some quirky neighbors, she said excitedly. I took a look around the neighborhood. It was quiet, with no signs of life other than myself. I highly doubt that, Sharon. I got to the front door. It had a fresh coat of white paint on it. I inserted the key and twisted the faded gold handle while holding my phone between my right shoulder and ear. When I opened the door, I was greeted by dusty, stale air. As I stepped inside, I coughed slightly, and my shoes squeaked as they made contact with the vinyl green flooring. I flipped a switch on the wall, which turned on the light of the ceiling fan to my right. I described everything I was... Seeing to Sharon, there was so much red carpet and green flooring. Oh, and the wooden walls. Wooden walls as far as the eye can see. As Sharon began to talk my ear off about the charms of wooden panel walls, I cast a glance towards the hallway that led to the rooms. It was dark. Even the lights couldn't pierce the shade within the hallways and illuminate it. Sharon kept talking, but I could hear the crying of a woman coming from the end of the hall. Hey, hold on a second. I I think I heard something, I whispered. What, is it a rat or something? Hey, what is it? 
Bethany! Sharon shouted through the phone. I took a step inside of the hallway, placing my hand on the walls to search for a light switch. My heart was racing. Was someone else in the house? I couldn't hear Sharon's voice anymore. All I could hear were those soft sobs. I flipped the switch when I finally felt it, but the darkness remained. I quickly turned on my phone's torch and directed its beam forward. The small light was being consumed. It couldn't show anything in front of me. I kept walking. The sobs getting louder and louder with each step. Hello? I said. Whoever you are, are you, are you hurt or something? The crying continued, and I summoned the courage to be more assertive, saying, Hey, if you don't say anything, I'm going to call the cops. I must have reached the end of the hallway. The source of the crying was right in front of me. I reached a hand forward, and my phone let out a shrill ring. I jumped, almost dropping my phone in the process. Then I realized the hallway was now dimly lit by the lights behind me. It was just me standing there alone. I answered the call and heard Sharon's voice asking me what had happened. I took a moment to process what I had just experienced and told her it was nothing. Just after that, I left and returned with Sharon. She had no reaction when I told her what had happened and suggested that we simply sage the area which we did after the paperwork was finished and we started moving in. Nothing else happened during the time we were bringing our belongings in, and nothing happened after we settled in. For a while, Sharon called herself the ghost killer, but I couldn't shake the unease I felt living there. Small things happened around the house for a few weeks later. Something would go missing, the television would turn on and off on its own, and a door would close unexpectedly. Sharon ended up saging the house a few more times, but it seemed like things were getting worse. We could feel eyes watching us, hear something breathing at the nape of our neck when one of us was alone at home. I remember coming home one night and finding Sharon curled up next to the front door. She was drenched in a bath towel, tears running down her face. Oh my gosh, what's going on, Sharon? I exclaimed as she stood up and rushed towards me, embracing me. I I was taking a shower she said, shaking. My face was in the hot water, then I felt something cold touch my back and run its way down. I, it felt like someone's cold hands grabbed me, and then I rushed out of the shower. After that incident, Sharon refused to bathe unless I was home. We started to feel afraid living in that house. I tried to look for another place, but we just couldn't afford it. One night, we wanted to take our minds off of the house, so Sharon and I decided to go out for drinks after work. It was a fun, brief moment of respite from the house. We drank our fears away and returned to that damn place without a second thought. We came bursting through the front door, laughing our butts off as we remembered an encounter with a couple of guys we met at the bar. It was nearing 3 a.m. and sleeping was creeping up on us. We told each other goodnight and went to our respective rooms. I was exhausted, so I threw off my clothes and crashed onto my bed. I fell into unconsciousness and was filled with dreams. No, they were memories. In my sleep, I was reliving memories of my ex-boyfriend. It began with the good times, such as our first date, moving in together, and sleeping beside each other in bed. Then I remembered his hand smacking my face and the scent of whiskey in the air as he grabbed my throat. I stayed with him for a long time, blaming his rage on my inability to make him happy. The memory continued for what seemed like an eternity until I finally woke up. I was relieved to be in bed, away from my ex-boyfriend. 
I just laid there for a moment, surrounded by darkness and staring up at the ceiling. I lightly touched my neck with my hand, and I could feel his fingers around my throat, a pain I'd never forget. I was taking a deep breath to calm myself when I heard the door to my room slowly open. Soft thuds of footsteps were approaching me, and I felt the end of my bed sink under the weight of another person. Sharon must have been feeling lonely, I thought. Come here, you drunk bitch, I muttered. They rested their head onto my chest, and their hair fell onto my face. I wrapped my arms around them and whispered, Thank you for being there for me. It was silent for a while. Then the quiet was broken by a woman's sobs. I realized how freezing cold my arms felt around this person, and I remembered I'd heard the sounds of this crying before. I couldn't move. This person was holding me down. The smell of decay began to fill my nostrils as the woman's cries grew louder and louder. I opened my mouth, taking in a deep breath to ready a scream. To my dismay, my inhale turned to choking as I felt spindly hairs enter my mouth. As she positioned herself over me, she began to lift herself off my chest and my ears filled with the sound of cracking. Her hair was so long and I could feel it moving inside of my mouth down my throat. She continued to cry as I struggled to breathe. Suddenly, Sharon's screams rang out from the hallway. Whoever was on top of me was now gone. Without any time to think, I wearily lifted myself out of bed. Sharon! I shouted with a raspy breath. I felt the blood drain from my face as I saw Sharon being dragged out of her room by her hair from some invisible force. Sharon looked at me and let out another blood-curdling scream. Whatever was holding her continued to drag her away from me. I darted forward, but as I got close, something slammed into my chest, causing me to stumble backwards. Sharon's body began to lift off from the ground, and her cries of pain filled the house. I felt helpless as I watched my friend's long black hair suspend her in midair. Then, with a loud thud, her body collapsed onto the floor. For a while, we just stared at each other, our eyes welling up with tears and horror seeping into our hearts. Then, after what seemed like an eternity of terrible silence, we rushed to embrace each other. We ended up spending the rest of the night sleeping in my car. We spent as little time as possible in the house in the days that followed. We dash inside to change clothes, bathe at a friend's house, and sleep in our cars. Sharon and I never discussed what happened that night. We didn't tell anyone about what was going on at the house of, for fear of being called insane. After a long day of work, I texted Sharon to see where she was, but she didn't respond. I checked with our mutual friends, and no one had seen or heard from her that day. I drove to the house as a terrible pit formed in my stomach. Sharon's car was parked in the driveway, and the lights were turned on inside the house. When I opened the front door, I was hit by a wave of what I could only describe as despair. The air felt heavy, and the house was deathly quiet. Sharon? I yelled. Are you here? From inside the living room, I heard her say, Bethany, I am here. Come quickly. I walked towards the sound of her voice, each step heavy in the oppressive atmosphere of the house. Sharon was sitting cross-legged in the center of the living room with something in front of her. A thick wooden board made of black wood with an array of white letters and numbers on it. Yet it instilled me with a sense of dread. What's going on here, Sharon? I asked with a shaky voice. She looked up at me. Her eyes had dark circles around and her face looked gaunt. I, I was hoping we would try to communicate with whatever is here. 
Sharon said as she wiped her face. I'm hoping we could ask what it wants, maybe try to appease it. I was taken aback. i never seen her look like this before, but it was something I recognized. Sharon, let's get out of here right now, I told her. No, no, there are no other options. We're either staying here or going out on the streets. When she said that, I noticed something flicker behind her, forming a shadowy silhouette for a split second. Please, Beth, just try. Please, Sharon begged. I didn't like where this was going, but I owed it to my friend to give it a shot. I sat behind her, unsure if what we were doing was right. We placed our hands on the planchette after she placed it on the board. As the wooden piece at our fingertips glided across the board, I could hear our shallow breaths and racing hearts. Is there anyone here? Sharon questioned. I felt a weight pressed down on my hand and the planchette shift to, yes. We both laughed, surprised, and then I asked the next question. What do you want? The weight stayed on our hands and the planchette moved to H. E. L. P. Help? I asked, perplexed. What do you need help with? Something began to flash before my eyes as I looked down at the board. There was another set of hands where our hands were. I followed the bruised gray hands up, up its black and purple covered arms, up its disfigured throat, to find a woman with long, thinning black hair staring at us murky brown tears running down her hollow eye sockets. The woman began to cry as our hands moved to the letters H-E-L-P-M-E over and over again, faster and faster. The lights began to flicker, then the board split in half with a horrific crack. Before I knew it, the woman darted towards me, pushing me down onto my back. She wailed, help me, help me! Her words resonated within me, but before I could say another word, Sharon shouted, Look! And I looked to see another entity behind the woman. It was a shape of a large man that towered over us. It was a being of pure darkness that took a shadowy hand and gripped the woman's neck. I watched the woman being lifted up by his phantom all the while her muddy brown tears streamed down her beaten face. She spoke with a raspy voice. Help! help me. I was struck with the familiarity of the situation. The spirit of the woman was in pain and the entity behind her was the true evil of the house. Even in death, this man had such a hold over her soul. I knew it all too well, giving power to a man who only wanted to hurt and control you. I looked over to Sharon and she had the same look on her face when she found out I was being abused by my ex-boyfriend. Leave her alone, I demanded the dark spirit. It turned towards me, and despite its lack of facial features, I could feel it smile at me as it dropped the woman from his grip. It stepped towards me, yet I held my ground. Sharon shouted, No, do not hurt her! as she clutched onto the dark spirit's weights. This moment triggered another familiar memory in my mind. I looked towards the broken soul of the woman on the floor and said to her, I know your pain. Of course I'll help you. The dark spirit took both of its hands and began to reach towards me. He wrapped his cold hands around my skull and began to squeeze. My vision began to blur and distort. Then when I was suddenly hit with how quiet it was, I could see that the woman was no longer sobbing as she lifted herself up. She wiped the dirty tears off her face and the once fearful expression she had shifted to resolve. 
The woman's soul burned brightly as she took her damaged fingers and pulled the dark spirit off of me. Sharon let go of the entity, and we both watched as it struggled. The woman yelled angrily as she dragged the man down to the floor. She ripped and tore at the shadow. Black blood began to spatter the room with the lights flickering. The sound of women crying was gone. Only the agonized cries of an abuser remained. The woman continued to break down the scattered bits of the man until nothing remained. After she was done, she sat motionless and stared at Sharon, then at me. Before us were still the broken pieces of a woman, but pieces that were being picked up and slowly put together. Thank you, she whispered before fading away into nothing. I felt something warm envelop me and slumped next to Sharon. I rested my head on her shoulder and she placed her head on top of mine. The heavy weight was lifted, the oppressive air had dissipated, and we had survived. Ah! That was a movie. Boom. Great story. That was so good. That was awesome. I felt like I was hanging off every word. That was so good. Heck yeah. Absolutely. Thank you, uh, Dark Hero. We appreciate it. Okay, what do you have for us today? All right. I have a story about one of Utah's biggest unsolved mysteries. Still unsolved to this day. Okay. All right, so the setting is January 1862, and to give you some context of this time period for the United States, the Civil War was in full swing, and Kentucky had just joined the Confederate States one month prior to the story I'm about to tell you. The first U.S. ironclad ship would be launched within a week. California, Oregon, and Nevada were underwater in the Great Flood, the largest ever flood recorded in these regions. In the same year, Congress would pass legislation outlawing slavery in all U.S. territories, and President Lincoln also signed the Pacific Railways Act, authorizing construction of the first transcontinental railroad. So, as you can tell, a lot was happening in the United States during this time, and Utah was no ex exception. Our story today is about one of the most notorious grave robbers, which also happens to be Still an unsolved mystery. A young man named Moroni Clausen was shot and killed by Salt Lake City police in Utah the same January of 1862. Just days before, he and another man were arrested for the robbery and assault of Governor John W. Dawson, and because of this attack, Moroni was placed in the state penitentiary, but he wouldn't stay there long. On January 17th, he hatched a plan and successfully escaped his prison, only to be pursued by the police, resulting in his death by gunshot wound. Moroni's corpse was buried in the Salt Lake City Cemetery on the North Bench, and because no one came forward with the funds to pay for his funeral or burial, Officer Henry Heath from the City Police Department paid for Moroni's burial in the clothes he would be buried in with his own money, one last act of sympathy for a life taken too soon. Wow. What a guy. What a guy. One week later, Moroni's brother arrived and started the process of exhuming his remains and placing him in a family plot. When the dirt was removed and the coffin was opened, all were horrified to see that Moroni's corpse was laying there completely naked. Quite a different scene from how he was buried just days before. The same officer that paid for Moroni's burial clothes, Henry Heath, launched an in-depth investigation into this baffling situation. 
Who would rob this young man of his last dignity? His clothes. Officer Heath immediately sought out the graveyard sexton for more information. Sexton Little claimed he didn't know what, what had happened, but suggested that the cemetery gravedigger, Jean Baptiste, might be of assistance considering he was the one responsible for digging all of the graves. Honestly, there's not much I could find about Jean Baptiste's early life. I suggest everyone check out the Dead Histories article about his life because she did a wonderful job compiling information and piecing together a comprehensive timeline. According to the Dead History, John Baptiste was listed on the 1860 census as being born in Ireland but also lived in Australia, and people who knew him in Australia said he didn't know how to speak English well. They said he also relocated to Australia from Italy, not Ireland. When he moved to America in 1855, people who knew him thought he was a Frenchman. So knowing this information, it's safe to say he was a man of mystery. International man of mystery. <laughs> One could assume he kept his background confusing on purpose, though we have no proof of this. It's just speculation. We do know that John and his wife lived in a small house close to the cemetery, and when Officer Heath and a few other men went knocking, John wasn't home. His wife Dorothy was home, however, and she invited the men inside to sit down and chat. Upon entering the living room, Officer Heath noticed a stack of odd-looking boxes in the corner of the room. Perhaps there were bits of clothing hanging out of the lids, or maybe the boxes smelled bad, but something prompted the policeman to sneak a peek and see what was inside. When he opened the box, he was met with quite the surprise. Folded and placed inside were the exact burial clothes he had just purchased for Moroni, the young man shot the week before. Upon discovering this, the police raced to the cemetery to hunt down Jean Baptiste, who was in the middle of digging a new plot. Officer Heath had buried his own daughter in the same cemetery the year before, and couldn't help but wonder if Jean meddled with her grave. The police pointed to various graves and asked Jean if he had each of the corpse's belongings, and to each he said yes, except for Sarah Heath's grave, the daughter of Officer Heath. The officer later recounted that if John had said yes to digging up his daughter's corpse, he was going to shoot him on the spot, but because he said no, they arrested him and brought him to prison. News of the arrest spread across the valley like wildfire, and it incited riotous crowds who vowed to kill John if they ever had the opportunity. John and Dorothy's home became the crime scene of the century, and it was discovered he hoarded the belongings of 300 different graves. 300! meaning this man single-handedly dug up the corpses of 300 different people and stole their items, including their jewelry and their clothing. If you think about it, that's a lot of stuff. It became overwhelming for the police to try and find the original owner's graves for each item, so they decided to put all of the clothing and jewelry and shoes and everything on display at the Salt Lake City Courthouse so families of the dead could come claim their loved one's belongings. It's not totally clear if Dorothy, Jean's wife, knew about his grave robbing habits, but let's be honest, your man has gone all hours of the night and comes home covered in dirt and mud and happens to have a brand new shiny gold ring for you and you don't even bat an eye at it. <laughs> for real. Like, how would you not know something's up? Exactly. So, whatever the case, um... All of the belongings were put on display 
and some were left over, so the city buried it in a mass grave at the cemetery. Okay. And I think it's unmarked, so, you know, we go there often. We could just be walking all over it for all we know. The Salt Lake Cemetery? Mm-hmm. Okay. The mobs grew bigger after Jean's arrest, threatening to lynch him, and it was the story of the time. Everyone in the valley knew about him. To address the public outrage, the leader of the Mormon church at the time, Brigham Young, told members of his church that neither shooting or hanging Jean-Baptiste would be a good enough revenge. He also said that locking him up for life wouldn't do anything either, so he suggested that Jean be exiled, and surprisingly, the state of Utah agreed. Jean-Baptiste was exiled to the tiny Fremont Island in the Great Salt Lake, not too far from Antelope Island. Fremont Island also goes by several names, including Miller Island, Castle Island, Coffin Island, and my personal favorite, Disappointment Island. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. You can find me there. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. It was lovingly dubbed Disappointment Island by the John C. Fremont himself, the first man of European descent to explore it. He hoped to find a tropical and exotic paradise, but was met with sagebrush, grass, and rocks. So, not even a tree in sight. Yeah, not much there. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) The only other people who were on Fremont Island was the family of the Millers. They owned cattle there and would return to the island every so often to check on their herd. They were aware that Jean was exiled to their island and saw him roaming around, but never interacted with him. A few weeks later, when the Millers returned, they found that their shack of food was in shambles. The food was taken, wooden beams were missing, and one of their cows had been killed, and its carcass was discarded nearby, missing its skin. It's believed that Jean killed and skinned one of the cows and stole the wood to create a raft because he was never seen again. Did he row away on the Great Salt Lake back to the mainland and disappear into the mountains? Or did his ship sink in the salt water? Oh, okay. Hmm. Officer Heath said in a later interview that he had received a tip that Baptiste escaped and made his way to mining camps in Montana, where he was telling fellow miners about living in Salt Lake City and his grave robbing habits. This theory, however, wasn't pursued, at least that I could find. In 1890, a human skull was found on the south side of the Great Salt Lake. Three years later, A human skeleton missing a skull was found near the lake with a ball and chain attached to its leg. Yo, what? The papers went crazy with this news, saying that the head had been finally found with its body and it must have belonged to Jean-Baptiste because what other inmate could it have been? Unfortunately, the rumor's untrue and Officer Heath confirmed that Jean wasn't bound by a ball and chain. So this is some other inmate that escaped and died at the lake from somewhere (laughs) (laughs) okay my personal theory is one that I haven't seen yet but it makes the most sense to me if you think about it escaping on a raft on the Great Salt Lake doesn't make a lot of sense because once you hit land it's just desert and people everywhere knew him no one would have helped him so that doesn't make a lot of sense so this is my theory I have no proof whatsoever that it's true it's just something that I wondered about So I believe that the Millers had something to do with Jean's disappearance. Perhaps they caught him trying to kill a cow. Maybe they caught him stealing food from their shack. Everyone knew about his grave-robbing crimes, and everyone was furious. So it would be no surprise to me if the Millers, 
the only other people on Fremont, Fremont Island decided to take matters into their own hands. Fremont Island is as remote as it gets, so if they wanted to kill him, what better place to do it and then frame his escape? Dismantle their own shack, maybe even kill a cow and make it look like he did it. While none of this can be proven, it does make me wonder if they know what really happened to the most notorious grave robber in Utah's history. And on that note, if you're ever walking along the south shore of the Great Salt Lake at night, keep your eyes peeled for the headless ghost of an inmate with a ball and chain. It might not be Jean-Baptiste, but he'll surely send you to your grave. Is that real? It's real. There's reports of a headless ghost. Yep. Dope. Yep. What are we doing here? Let's go. I don't even know. <laughs> That's awesome. Wow. Very yeah. interesting. Yeah. It's like, I like major puzzle piece. Yeah, sure. I like your theory. It's a good theory. It would make a lot of sense why they would just off him. It makes the most sense to me. Sure. And... It's not that far-fetched considering that years later, a different Utah family moved to Fremont Island. We're the only ones who lived there because the father contracted tuberculosis and he wanted to make his family as remote as possible just for everyone's safety. And he died there, so they buried him on the island. And now it's just owned, I think, by like the Department of Wildlife Services or something. Mm. So... The fact that someone has been buried there before tells me that it's not just all rocks, that people can be buried there. Mm -hmm. So it, ju it just makes sense. The Millers are the only other people who ever saw him. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. Maybe we need to talk to some of their descendants, see if someone kept a journal or something. Yeah. And now that I'm thinking about it and what I read, it was only the brothers of the Millers who would go check on their cattle. So the men of the family would go check. And mm -hmm. wouldn't be surprised if they got violent with Sean. Yeah, sure. They caught him, like you said, mm -hmm. um, attacking the cow or whatever, killing it. And then that's when they pounced on him for, you know, robbing them. So maybe wow. they were just pissed at the state for being like, yo, you set this guy to our island uh -huh. where we keep our herd, our only like money income. Yeah. Yeah. So. No, that makes sense. Makes sense to me. I think the Millers were hiding something and maybe did everyone a favor. No. Darn. <laughs> Darn. <laughs> Darn it. Okay, well, great story. Thank you. Do you have anything else? That's it for me. All right, guys. Well, we will scare you in the next one. Stay spooky. Bye. <laughs>